Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Inland Valley Art and Literature Show. We've been away for about a month because of Culturama, which was fantastic, but we're, we're back now. And um, we're going to talk, uh, we're going into a little bit of discussion of uh, abstract expressionism before and after and all around it. And why don't we just introduce our, ourselves. Uh, my name is John Branningham. I teach at Mount Sac. I run the California Images and Gallery in Ontario. Uh, my name's Tim Hatch. I uh, I will be teaching at Mount Sac, I think, next year. Um, hey. I think. Um, as well as uh, Riverside Community College and Cal State San Bernardino, and I write poetry and creative nonfiction and other stuff. Hi, I'm Ken Johnson. I teach uh, no more. I was uh, I'm retired from teaching, which is a delightful job. I, I love it. And um, I've been writing and I taught art. And so art's kind of a second thing. I've sort of loosely affiliated with the Sassy Museum of Art um, as we speak. Hi, I'm Kate Flannery. I'm a writer and lawyer in Claremont. And I've had an ongoing love affair with art since I was about 14 years old, which is another story in itself, but I'm happy to be here. And my name's Jeffrey Gressley. I'm a technical writer for currently a, a tax firm where we do research and development. Okay, uh, today we're coming together and we're going to uh, take a look at some, some questions. And this is something very close to Ken's heart, I know. Um, three questions we're going to ask are centered around um, abstract expressionism. But the three questions are, what is art owed to society? How does abstract expressionism fill that role? And do, do individual artists go about this role differently? And so, Ken, you wanted to give us a little bit of background. Yeah. Um, the whole business about what is abstraction um, is, is a contested area to start with. And if you look like at some of the expressionists, you know, clear back there, even the, before the post-impressionist, um, J.M. Turner, for instance, was doing these, these landscapes and seascapes, which were, were very vague, to, vague to the point of being abstracted. And um, others were doing the same thing at the time. Um, fast forward to the beginnings, just the, the, the bare beginnings of the 20th century. Um, Vasily Kandinsky is often cited as being the first abstract painter. Um, and that's wrong. He wasn't. And why he wasn't is kind of a, a more interesting story. There's a woman, if you could put that, that uh, slide up with, with the Hilma van uh, Klimt paintings. These paintings were generally considered in the art world, and this is uh, over the, a, a new development. These are considered the first abstract paintings. And they preceded Kandinsky's by 30 years. And when you look at them, and I, and I chose, rather than show um, different pictures, these are all from one series, but they're all arranged. These are her largest. And you can see by the, the scope of those things, she did 
this series is called 10 of the largest and they're enormous paintings and they're rather fanciful, interesting use of color and, and there's almost an organicity to the forms involved, but none of them are uh, specifically organic forms, nor are they attended to. Turns out Hilma von Klift, um, excuse me, Hilma Aufklimt, um, is she's Dutch and she managed to, um, to do a standard uh, portfolio of very realistic um, stuff like you'd expect painting in, in that part of the world that in that era. But then all of a sudden she took off in a new direction She's very much a spiritualist. Mm. And her idea was in doing these paintings. We've got an earthquake going on here, folks, in Upland. Hasn't hit us yet. Well, it's a weird sound. Maybe it's something different. Maybe it's a big truck out on the street or something. Anyway, um, so these big big paintings came out of her um, unconscious or super conscious. I don't know, depending on how you want to slice that one, but she's channeling in, in a specific, she's a medium for a specific spiritual person. And so this is kind of, uh, the idea of where these came from was upsetting to the the uh, art world and the cultural world as it was then. And so she received advice by um, some very noted um, people who worked in various parts of the, the cultural enterprise to not show them, to mm -hmm. hide them away. And she did. She did not show these in any large, exhibit during her lifetime. And um, there was another issue involved and that's the fact that she was a woman. And in the world of art, in the uh, from time immemorial up through uh, probably 70s or 80s, women had a real rough go at being seen and heard. And Part of the reason why her work was suppressed was because it was damn good. And it presented a challenge to the male patriarchy in the, the gallery system. So anyway, bottom line, they didn't show a lot in, until after she, was, she died. She also wrote in her will that her paintings not be shown for 20 years after her death hmm. because the world wasn't ready for her. That's interesting. She, yeah, she, so, so this is like 30 years before the first acknowledged abstraction, ab abstract painter, who is Kandinsky. Okay, so we have then the, the, the number of people after that is large um, and primarily male. And we get increasingly abstract stuff. But these, I just wanted you to see, uh, this stuff is 30, this, these precede 
most, what you'll read in most art books about the history of art. These precede the anything there by 30 years. And I think that's notable. These were taken, this, this photograph was taken in, in the, um, the Guggenheim had a big show and you know, the Guggenheim is that large spiral building and you walk down the staircase and you go past and the building was nearly full of Von Klimt stuff. It was just a staggering show. And it's, it's very hip and very trendy now to acknowledge her work. So I want you to know that I'm hip and trendy. Okay, let's see the next one. Okay, just uh, remember yeah. this, this is an audio program. So if you'd like to, to look at this, oh. her last name is <laughs> I'm sorry. AF space K-L-I-N-T. And she's all over the internet. Yeah, Clint is a town where she comes from. Mm. It's not her last name. But evidently she was the only Hilma from, from there. These are our, our big flashy paintings with, with broad, bold colors and uh, very dynamic. Mm -hmm. But then the next guy who got into that um, didn't follow the same kind of conceptual direction. And that's Pollock. Could we go to you know, Pollock's painting? Are, are we not looking at it now? Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, I don't want to. I don't want to talk forever, but but uh, I, I thought just a little background would be good. This is um, Pollock's grade rainbow, and um, the grade rainbow is is a very large piece. It's tall as well as wide, and um, this was one of the first he did when he was moved into his new painting quarters in New York, where he took over a barn. And he would roll these giant uh, canvases out and paint directly on them, on the floor. He would splash and drip. And, and the question is, is, is that just a gimmick? And a lot of the abstract expressionists were accused of having developed gimmicks so that they could wow the galleries and, and be seen. Um, and the answer, I think, is no, he had a real specific reason why he was painting this way. He wasn't painting with his head. And he was hardly painting with his feelings. He painted turning over the whole process to his body. So the, the concept is action painting. And, and a number have, have done that. I've got um, a couple things that I wrote uh, for another project. Um, one is about Hilma, and then the next is is uh, about this particular painting, Great Rainbow. Um, and we we might get to that in a minute, but but right now um, the thing is the size and the physicality and the just sheer in your face uh, bigness of his work. And the fact that it's an all over composition, it doesn't have a, you, you can't follow the line of composition through it. It doesn't try and, and deceive you into seeing it as three dimensional. It just is what it is. And he, he would paint in um, walking around this, the canvas and paint from all sides and he'd throw it and he'd 
sometimes toss stuff in it, leaves and 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 sticks and and old paint brushes sometimes. Um, and so when you stand in a museum and you get up close, they are a whole different experience. So he painted um, in the early 50s. And so Hilma Van Klimt is not considered an abstract expressionist. Pollock is. Um, around the uh, 40s and 50s, abstract expressionism as a specific school of painting developed. And that was, um, that moved the center of focus from Europe, which was ravaged by war, used to be the art center of the Western world. Um, a lot of them came fleeing the war to New York and um, New York became the center of the Western art world. So here it is. Um, the next one is the Rothko. So this is a, um, his paintings also were big. They're probably eight to 10 feet high. Um, and this one is broad and Rothko is known for these massive fields of color. And people look at him and say, there's nothing going on and, and you just have to look harder. There's a great deal going on. This one, I do want to, read what I wrote for this is the title of it is Orange Red Yellow 1961. And I wrote a letter to Rothko, even though he's dead. Um, I said that day that I sat down on the bench in the exhibit hall, suddenly you were there. Whatever you had planned, when you painted the last layer, what you meant by hued nuance and texture, the undercoats and surface, you had me by force. You painted to overwhelm like the medieval stained glass panel and panels set in clean spacious darkness, a planned conversion by scope. No one can sit in the presence of your color expanse and still remain unmoved. Tragedy ecstasy, torment, exaltation, all play out in that quiet glow. Yet it's your edges that have most, that most have me enthralled. Whatever you intend for your color fields, whatever meaning I project, your edges tell a different story. Like many visitors, I stand and come closer, standing one foot away from an eight foot tall painting, so close I can still smell the oil and another transmission occurs. Between the vast entities that tell color stories, between the reds and the yellows and the dark violets, a liminal space develops, a lively in-between conversation. Your edges contain their own invitations and pull deftly from me, hidden secrets, scarcely known to myself. The reason I wanted to do that was because with many of the abstract expressionists, because they are non-objective, because they don't have objects as we are used to seeing them in the world to relate to one another, the feeling is that, that there's nothing specific to hang one's hat on in, in looking at them. 
but their emotional experiences and they're deeply projective. Um, Rothko was, was known for spending probably as much time in his psychiatrist's office as he did in his studio. Uh, he was exploring the, the depths, he was plumbing the depths of his own psyche and that's where this stuff came from. They're about emotion. They're not about things. They're not about objects. They're not even about thoughts. They're about feelings. They're about spirituality. And that's important to know about abstract expressionism generally. Okay, so so Rothko and Pollock and those guys sort of faded out after the 60s. Um, what took their place, and this is why we kind of have to, to take a step back and look at it. We got to talk about post-abstract expressionism in order to understand the point of expressionism. And that's because the whole movement towards postmodernism came in with a like like a, a wrecking ball, literally. Um, it came in and it contested everything that was taken for granted in the art world, the primacy of galleries and critics, um, the the whole point of making these massive decorations when we should be doing philosophy. We should be doing social critique. This is kind of what the uh, the movement in in um, Europe during the First World War had had uh, created the Dao movement. The the artists there were sitting around watching their friends go off to the trenches and saying, "What the hell are we supposed to be doing here? You know, decorating the walls of the of the arms factory owners." who are making millions off our friend's death is no, we should be critiquing society, not decorating it. And that's kind of played out with the, with the, the work of the, the modernists and then what followed the modernists. There are abstract expressionists still working and they're not working in the vacuum. The, the almost solipsistic vacuum that the, the uh, modern, modernist abstract expressionists worked in. They work within a social context and it's called neo-expressionism. And neo-expressionists, there's various kinds, one of which is they're called relationalists and they came from um, a French, art critic, Bouillard, who um, said, look, it's, it's not, artists can't work alone. They work in direct contact with their society. And I, I did bring one other piece um, to show, and that's the um, Bill Moore's piece. You, you know, Bill Moore, you know, most of us know him in, uh, Pomona. The piece I'm showing is a, um, it's a very abstract piece. There are shapes in it. It's not like color fields, um, but there's also 
incredible texture and uh, yes can we give the name of it so people can look it up online uh yeah um hang on hang on i can do this i don't i don't have it i don't have it written down Um, oh what's the name of it the soft closing of the day thank you and so we have what could possibly could be considered a sun that's setting or it could be a billion other things there seems to be a horizon line but that's a matter of conjecture there's a black square maybe it's a building maybe it's um, a portal into the next life we don't know uh, but this thing together hangs as a, a very wonderful piece but that's not the point of it the point isn't to make something that looks good on a wall that misses the point of bill and what he's about the relational art is art that is typically abstract in nature, but it serves a relational purpose. That's the main point of it. So if we take uh, a couple other people, one would be um, Anselm Kiefer, who's German. Uh, Most of his stuff is abstract. Um, It's also big. Kiefer grew up, he's about the same age I am. He grew up the end of the the Second World War and he grew up in the post-war environment and all his work explores the concept of what's Germany now? Where are we as a nation? Um, Now that we've found out our dark side, it's been trotted out for the world to see. now that we've been laid waste uh, economically, you know, um, what do we have left? Uh, our, our, our mythos, the very thing we structure ourselves as a nation has been seen to be um, a ludicrous endeavor, which ended catapulting us into the Second World War. Um, he spent 40 years as an artist playing out different themes that came up and exploring this, this concept of where are we as a people? Another artist, uh, this one up in Oregon, a friend of mine, Wes Hurd. Wesley Hurd is a, a brilliant abstract artist, um, but his work, he's essentially a theologian. His work takes place in a particular community. Now the community in question um, got hit by a school shooting, which just was devastating for it. He painted this set of large paintings, nine large paintings out of his own grief. And a friend who's a composer pulled together and said, look, I wanna write a, a musical score to accompany your pieces. And they did it and they put together this community gathering after the shooting. And here's these paintings that are exploring the grief process. And here's this music that's that's very um, provincial French in that that it's um, sounds like Scottish music, lots of pipes and fiddle and, and a lot of keening instruments. 
And so we all gathered this as a group, uh, people from the surrounding community. And we listened to him talk about his painting process and the, the composer talk about the, the background of the music. And we, we heard the concert and we watched the paintings. And um, it was all about what do we do when we as a community have been shattered? And so the artwork, while abstract, served a clear social purpose of attempting to heal after this devastating event in the community. Bill Moore doesn't work at that level. He works at an individual level and it's, it's not about seeing the pretty paintings, it's going and standing with him and looking at him. And he enters into dialogue with it. It's not about converting you or, or trying to preach a particular theology or anything like that. It's about, he's more interested in what you have to say in reaction to what he painted. And so here's Kiefer working on a national level. Here's um, Wes Hurd working on a community level. Here's Father Bill Moore working on an individual level. The common denominator is that they all are doing relational work. And that's where, that's where the abstract expressionist work has gone since the postmodern critique. So, so then we get to the question. Um, the question is, what, what is, what does art owe to society? And how does abstract expressionism fill that role? Why don't we just take that, um, maybe, get everybody in on this. Yeah. What do you all think that art owes to society or does it? What do you think? I don't, I don't think, I don't think art, oh, sorry, I just jumped right in like a, please, please. like an arrogant dick. But um, I don't think that art, uh, I don't think it owes anything, but it can't help but have a, a relationship to society. I mean, it's always, I think there's, Nina Simone said that, that that's the point for her, that was the point of art was to reflect the times that you live in. Um, um, well, Ken's story earlier talking about uh, art, it's not our job to decorate society, it's our job to critique society. Um, that was specifically set during that uh, era. But I mean, I think that's kind of a, in my humble opinion, I, I think that's going to Ultimately, I think that should be uh, answered by each artist, but um, mm -hmm. for themselves. But I, regardless of what it owes society, I mean, it can't help but have some kind of relationship, whether it's adversarial or, or otherwise. It but feels it, it, adversarial to uh, to me, anyway. I maybe that's man, my own. I'm bringing my own baggage to other people's work too. But it feels a lot of it feels adversarial. By its nature, it is part of society, right? I mean, it's it's a social social act, right? Yeah. Um, then maybe that adversarial sort of nature, that pushing against sort of thing, is part of what art art is meant to do. All right. Let's. Uh... Um, if I could jump in too, I would say uh, the only thing it's really owed is uh, the notion of being genuine, um, at least to oneself as the artist meaning that I'm not putting on airs to impress. I am being genuine to myself to convey whatever uh, form of truth, you know, I hold. 
and that's the thing like tim and i were talking earlier about the artist uh or the author in case of like a story we're critiquing the they are in charge of all of this if a character isn't working you pull it out you don't make sure it stays in and then write around it while ignoring some glaring problem with it just because you love that character so much it's jar jar binks it's it's every character that everybody hates um and i think art uh, visual art like this um is kind of cool because every piece of it I feel has so much so much more meaning than what 45 pages of a text could uh, of a text of a larger 500 uh, page novel could really mean uh, where every brush stroke is counted where the edges that uh, displayed uh, the changes of a color could tell more of a story than what those 45 pages of text could I, I really appreciate that stuff because all of it feels genuine and I think there's no room to not be genuine with visual art like this. Hmm. I'm going to jump in and sort of be a, a devil's advocate here. Okay. Somehow being um, elitist in our view of artists. In other words, they have to speak the truth. They have to, um, they have to reflect society. They have to be philosophical. They have to critique. They also have to make a living. Um, and so I'm wondering if we're being just a little bit too... I, maybe elitist is, is too harsh, but um, I know a lot of artists out there and, and by that term, I include visual artists, musicians, writers who are confronting every day the need to you know, pay bills and uh, appeal to the marketplace to sell their work. Um, and are we saying that they're not artists? Well, uh, you know, we've got a great example here. Uh, Jeffrey is both a poet and a technical writer. Um, do you, do you uh, draw a distinction between those two things? 100%. Um, but I, I, I do it only in the capacity of, of what project I'm currently working on because I can't make myself stop knowing the things I know about technical writing and let that influence my ability to write a poem. Um, but I have to, of course, separate them based on projects, which I like what Kate just said because yes, an artist has to feed themselves. If I was being judged as an artist based on the technical narratives I write for the work I do to feed myself, I'd be devastated. <laughs> like I am so much more. Uh, but, I, but I do that because I love my family, my dogs love eating. It just works out best if I, if I go to work. But that doesn't stop me from writing poems in the morning. I just think, and, and I hate to like smash anyone's dreams like that's such bullshit the only thing you really need to do is change your expectations as an artist if your expectation is to like walk into walgreens and see there's a tim hatch there's the latest tim hatch right there at the at the kiosk then yeah dude i'm here to smash dreams but really i just want to align expectations dude this lady the the I, i'm so infatuated with hilma off clint i think uh She's amazing. She's an artist and a mystic. Like I just briefly did a cursory uh, look at her Wikipedia and she is a very interesting cat to say the least. Um, she, she, she had to pay the bills somehow. And if she didn't want her art to be seen for 20 years, I don't, I don't know. I, I, like uh, uh, um, uh, Ken had said that there was uh, like a portfolio and she had a typical or traditional work, but, it, but anyhow, I'm just saying everybody has to, to feed themselves. And if you still want to be an artist after you fed yourself, then God bless you. I, uh, 
I also feel like it's very, without trying to be funny or self-deprecating, I probably am elitist a lot of the time. Um, Me too. But, uh, but I mean, I, I also think that it's, uh, I don't know, like look at John Sales, I think that's his name. Uh, he's a director and uh, a writer of some amazing movies over the last several decades. But early on in his career, he wrote just absolute crap. I mean, he's the guy who wrote like the giant octopus attacks movie so that he could then fund his uh, independent films that no one had any interest in funding. Um, so like, I'm not going to kind of like Jeff was saying, I, I would never judge John Sayles for his Attack of the Giant Octopus movies. You know, uh, Ed, Ed Harris did that so he could make the Jackson Pollock movie. Yeah, 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 he did. Although I, 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 I God knows I don't know what he made in order to fund it, but I'm sure it was part of a deal he made with some studio. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great movie, by the way. Yeah, it's, um, so, okay, so um, it's it seems like we're, f- creating a dichotomy. We're saying that there is art that can feed you and say interesting things. And um, I'm sorry, and that can't say interesting things. And then there's the art that you don't get paid for that does say interesting things. Is that a false dichotomy? Um, Can we separate between content creation and art? Okay. Because like, I'm, I'm, I'm writing essentially documents that get read by an IRS agent. He has probably no appreciation for art, but I love what I do. So I'm going to have some art in there, but I will never call it that. I don't um, know. You know, uh, the, the cleanness of technical writing is it's a beautiful kind of pretty, thing. Yeah. It's, a, it's an extraordinary thing. And the fact that somebody who has no interest in, in writing outside of this one context likes it and appreciates it and can get through it smoothly. I would argue as someone who used to poorly write uh uh, who used to poorly program, um, really poorly. Uh, I would argue that there is an art to elegant code. Mm-hmm. So is it a false dichotomy? I think, yeah, probably. But I mean, that, there's also a point at which I'm not qualified personally to make that. I can look at the attack of the giant octopus and then I can look at men with guns and I can say which one of those is art. And I feel very confident making that distinction. And I would probably have, I'd be willing to argue that with anyone except John Sayles. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I don't know. What makes elegant code? Well, I mean, it probably depends on which programming language we're talking about. And uh, I know, I, 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 I know a little bit of Java and that's about it. And I know, I know some internet stuff, HTML, that's not really programming. So, I mean, I don't know. Is it a false distinction? Yeah, I imagine. And I imagine, Jeff, I imagine there is art injected into your technical writing and and maybe that IRS agent totally appreciates art and doesn't care about his job at all. Or maybe it's the other way around or whatever. I don't know. But well, I think there's a point at which you can't necessarily see the art injected into something that pays the bills for someone. I was just going to say that, like, I just learned today that Kate is a lawyer. Is that correct? And I do tax work. So I like your, I like your story. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Um, I think that's super cool what you do. Um, and I was just going to say, I bet 
at some point or you yourself um i don't know what type of lawyer you were with like trial or corporate or, or whatever but you probably developed a process to handle your workload and like any process there's efficiencies and when you get really good at doing anything your efficiency goes really high and i always because i have that technical bent i i see there an artistic flow to that much like a watch you open up a watch it's very beautiful to watch momentarily because of how intricate it is i, I speaking as a as someone who has a, a swiss person as a son-in-law and i mean they are really oddly um attuned let's say to to watches and it's a it's a swiss thing and i can't quite explain it but it has something to do with what you're what you're talking about yeah, I think it sounds like we're sort of sniffing around the edges of maybe a distinction between art and craft, which is always um, a distinction, which is always sort of, I, I liked it, and but it also puzzled me because you talk about you know craftsmen, people who um, have uh, re-engaged with ancient arts of, of stone cutting or wood cutting or um, all of those things. And you know, are they craftspeople or are they artists or what are they? So I think um, some of these distinctions and dichotomies um, uh, help us understand things, but I think they can also be confusing at times. You think they get wrapped up with cl social class? Sure, yeah, absolutely. Okay, maybe we should come back to, to, to a question that Ken started to answer, which is, okay, so we're thinking about these ideas of what, what does art owe to society, if it, if it owes anything, then how then does abstract expressionism fit into that role? Let me take an initial shot at that because we talk about, there's some distinctions, you know, when Kate made the distinction between art and craft, I think you could also make a distinction between art and artistry. And so I know that when I wrote books to assist therapists in working with clients who suffered from PTSD, that I had to write things in a way that was, didn't obscure the, um, the techniques, nor did it obscure the complexity of that which they were treating, but still made enough clear sense that it was informative. And so I would balance different factors in doing it. And I don't know, Jeff, maybe this is, uh, relates to what you do, um, but I would have to make, um, I'd have to write clearly. I'd have to write in a way that was engaging and caps, capture people's imaginations as well as their hearts but to do it in a, in a way that, that helped them deliver a technically appropriate intervention. Yeah, and so, so I think what I did is I was writing, I wasn't doing art, I, but I was writing with artistry. That's where I'm going with this. And then, so that takes me to that question of, um, owing to society. And I think that is a moral question. It's not an art question. Mm. And it's not even a practical question. It's about morality. As an artist, I do stuff 
that for various reasons, but there are moral implications with what I do. If I talk about writing a story and I have to deal with this because I've, I've got these stories that are interesting as hell, but they've, but, but they can be damaging to the reader. Right. And I think that what I have to do instead of making something as sensational as possible, my job is to make it interesting, but safe mm -hmm. to read and not just throw it out there and say, Hey, if they want to eat it up, go for it. Um, but I have a moral obligation to my readers not to trash them. So it goes beyond just tr truth telling. It's yeah. also making sure that you're not uh, opening the world up to, to greater evil. Yeah, and it's a do no harm thing. So I think there are moral implications to our, our artwork. Uh, I really and struggle with that really uh, deeply. Just want to throw it out there. How so? Because uh, morality is very subjective. And, and I'm thinking of like Degas. Uh, he, he's depicting ballerinas as, you know, little children who are in a sense sex slaves and, and being so horribly mistreated. And the only limelight they'll ever see is this one instance of me breaking a uh, convention of what's okay to, to show and I'm going to hit you in the face with how harsh reality could be. Um, so, so if I'm obligated to always wear kid gloves when I'm discussing something that I'm upset enough to risk uh, persecution or uh, being outright you know, uh, removed from, from the conversation, my contribution can no longer be relevant. I, I, <clears throat> if I'm pushed to that point, uh, I, I think there's, uh, who am I to say what the moral line is? Uh, and yes, I think some of the most moving things are the most painful. And, and like, I, I understand the push to like be very sensitive to, to the way people feel and how they identify. And I think that's all very important to make sure that people can learn because like in order to learn about anything, you need to first feel safe. I totally get all that. Um, but art is art is the thing that I feel gets used to teach. It is not the teaching instrument itself. And what I mean by that is we often like we'll will like Tim has an assignment where he makes them makes his students uh form their opinions and then uh, find information that counters their opinions and they're forced to identify uh, and, and hold things that they disagree with and talk about them. I think that's what good art does. It, it gets people like us in a room discussing what the various elements of it could be. And it's not, it's not then, it, it's kind of then removed. Like the artist is kind of gets removed from it and we're able to just see it for what it is rather than the moral implications of it existing in the first place. But, but Jeff, I, I hear you saying two things at once. Okay. I, I hear you bringing up Degas, for instance, and saying, okay, so the guy paints these romanticized versions of little girls and sexualizes them. And then that's not no 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 that's not what happened he they are being sexualized already he is right. showing the world that they are this is happening 
And it's probably against the greater, the, the, the druthers of the people who don't want to be exposed for having this fetish. Uh, it, it's morally wrong to do so. But I think it's actually right to do so. So see how more morality can change. You're saying that, that by exposing this truth, that he might offend sensibilities. Right. But he's doing it for a larger purpose, and that's to protect those people yeah. who are being abused. They'd call it consequentialism. He's engaged in consequentialism. Exactly. So if, if he was to do it in such a way that just decorated this foul process, that you'd call that um, working less than morally, that he's making money by decorating some, some foul business practice that sexualizes young girls. It, and it, so, so what you're saying is that by doing that, by painting those things, which, which kind of confront us with our own, um, what dispositions slash practices, whatever, that that's a moral act. And I'm saying, yeah, I, you and I are on the same page in that. Okay. So I'm saying that, that you know, and, and I don't think art owes anything to society, but I think artists do because they're human beings and they're acting in society. So I'm sorry to interrupt, but like if we were, I know in five, 10 years, maybe sooner, we're all, uh, collectively in for some horrifying revelations about what's been going on in our borders over the last several years. Mm -hmm. um, inevitably, there will be movies, uh, there will be books, uh, and uh, in both cases, they will be, there will be fiction and nonfiction versions. So uh, for whatever the fiction, the fictionalized versions of what's going on in these detention centers, which is the nicest possible way to, to label those. Um, if the movie is too slavishly faithful to what's actually happening, at what point does it go, I guess, at what point does it transition from uh, sort of being a, holding up a, a mirror to reveal ourselves to ourselves uh, to just exploitative because um, you don't want it to be exploitative well I would hope no one would want to exploit the memory of what is happening currently but I mean at some point I mean there, there's an entire I'm related to people who think that what's going on there is no big deal and if they knew what was happening, they would be horrified uh, to the point of tears and, and God knows what else. And um, so you, you want to hold up, you want to make that ugly, you want to make it brutal, but at what point is that going too far? Um, too far in what direction? I don't understand. Well, I mean, at what point is it too brutal? Because as you said, you don't want to traumatize the reader or the viewer or whatever. Or maybe you want to traumatize them up to a point, <laughs> uh, to the point of awareness and not to the point of just, you know, mind-shattering horror. I don't know. Isn't, um, isn't, that, isn't that where the art comes in? 
Um, and that is that the artist makes a choice. Is he going to or she going to show something very dra graphically and basically smack us all in the face with it? Mm -hmm. Or is the artist going to portray it in such a way that the effect on our souls is, is deeper, is more devastated? Not because of anything that was uh, portrayed graphically, but because of the implications. And I mean, we deal with that as writers all the time. You know, it's it's mm -hmm. you're you're much you're much more effective, and there's more art in what you do um, when you don't just smack people in the face. Well, you, you know what? Th this is the distinction between art and pornography, and it can be a sexual pornography or a pornography of violence or yeah, yeah. Um, And I think there's there's a you look at something like Schindler's List. That's not pornography. There, it's really going to the very depths of what it is, um, of, of what, how painful movie making can be. Uh, but it's, it's not in any way por pornographic. It's not just there to show, show like, kind of indulge us in our- Like our a whole swath of horror movies from the last 10, 15, 20 years, which are just torture porn. Yeah. I'm yeah. thinking of like Hostel or what, which by the way, I've never watched. So <laughs> maybe I'm mischaracterizing Hostel. But like what, or, or like the Saw movies, they all just seem like torture porn to me, which I can't even. You know, I'm so glad I don't even know what you're talking about there, Tim. You, I, 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 I'm I, envious. I successfully sheltered myself from all of this gratuitous awfulness. I have, I, I have uh, starting about 15 years ago, I saw something, I won't even go into what it was, but I saw something on uh, the internet that was early video pre-youtube and it was so horrifying that it permanently destroyed my ability to watch horror i, well, I you, can't you're, watch you're it talking, you're talking to a person here who walked out of this movie this classic movie called the, the towering inferno <laughs> it is the only movie i have ever walked out of because i couldn't handle the slow mo spinning flaming bodies that were i knew going to plunge out of a window i thought yeah. I, there's no reason I need to see this. No, I grew up. I, I saw that as a kid, so I, I I was like unaffected by it. I was too young to be, but <laughs> but I will say it's a terrible movie. I don't. Yeah. You win there too. Good job walking out of it. <laughs> it's the I, only. Uh, Tim, you're probably like me. We were, we were we watched it, but we were too young to know who the celebrities were. Or why we should care about? I people. was just yeah. Well, I mostly I was like, there, there's a lot of drama in those old disaster movies that is utterly uninteresting. Like when you're five and watching that, you're like, where's the fucking Godzilla? Where's the monster? <laughs> or is there no monster? Because I'm out. If that's the case, this is just this is all the boring parts of Godzilla. So okay, so yeah, we, so we've got we, we we've got a discussion now of what's the difference between art and what and and pornography and i think that gets to the heart of what the as ken would say the artist owes, owes society um the yeah. So, yeah um I, I which is kind of what i love about abstract expressionism there's no way to have porno implications to an abstract expressionist face i mean if it's i mean i suppose there could be i don't know no but i don't think anything's gratuitous in it i mean it's just it is what it is. There's something something pure about it. That's a really interesting point. And I think that's what Father Bill was all about when he would invite people into his studio and they'd have this conversation because he knew that, that and he wanted to know what each person could draw from um, his work. And I, I think part of that came from his 
uh, work as an artist, but part of it came from his work as a priest. I think he was definitely concerned about it, the soul to soul um, mm -hmm. relationship that goes on between the artist and the person who looks at the art. I've said a few times that I, I would have stayed in the church had I known Bill, probably. Yeah. yeah. Uh, an interesting guy. Um, okay, so um, I don't know that, I think we've already covered the last question pretty well. Do individual artists go about this role differently? And I think the answer is almost has to be yes. Inevitably. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah uh, I, I, I personally want to come back to one thing and that is that in any moral conversation, we end, we end up with the possibility of, of you know, what, what we might call mixed motives or mixed values or mixed intent, um, where, where you've got multiple demands on you morally. I mean, you, you run into that in teaching all the time, yeah. all the time. Um, if, if you're a teacher, you know, sometimes you got to sacrifice the individual for the group. If you're a teacher, sometimes you have to sacrifice the whole damn class for the administration or else the whole, that structural whole will fall. That's um, not as often as they make it, <laughs> they, they try and claim, but the point is that we have settings where we have to make moral decisions about what we do. And as artists, we're kind of in that. The pornography distinction is a great one. It, it's, it's a caricature. Um, and it says, look, um, we have to explore what we're doing. A, we've got to feed ourselves and our family. B, and we have a moral responsibility to do that. B, if I put out something that we might call pornography, it will have a negative effect on people out there. But if I can find a way to make the, the cognitive or spiritual transformation possible out of a close look at something that's uncomfortable, then that may be the higher goal in here. So we have to re-examine our, re our motives. Are we going to go uh, Kantian? and say there's absolute things that we shouldn't touch? Um, or are we gonna get more utilitarian about it and say, do we have, uh, you know, which, which action here will result in the most good or the least bad as a result of what we do? Just because individual artists have a moral stake in what they do, doesn't make it necessarily a simple decision. Mm -hmm. and, and Kate, that speaks to your point of, do we address a major underlying issue of justice or do we not do it because somebody's feelings might be hurt in looking at it? You know, and that sort of depends on whether we get gratuitous or not. Yeah, and I know, um, uh, Ken and I had this conversation about something I was writing at one point, and I, I was very concerned about the effect of what I was writing on, on two people that I care about. And we had about a 20 minute long discussion just along those lines, which was, well, what, what are we doing? Are we doing it you know, because we wanna create some harm or some hurt or we wanna speak the truth? 
um, or, or is there something larger that can be learned from putting these words down on paper in a certain way? Um, and maybe the, um, the bad effect that I thought might result from putting those words down on paper could in fact be a good result. Mm. But then I have to look at those words and I have to make sure I'm choosing them in such a way that I'm testing my own motives in, in writing it. It's a very difficult thing to do when you're, yeah. when you're that close to it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yep. That's yeah, I've had trouble with my stories about some of the incidents that I've been involved in, and, you know, long range reconnaissance patrol activity north of the DMZ, the result in brutality. And do I write about it where it curls your hair to read it? Do I ignore it? In which case it doesn't get addressed. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, a, it's a back and forth. The interesting kind of um, quicksand that you can run into sometimes is the fact that there's a, there's a test in the law for the, the various uh, mistakes you can make in writing at least. Um, and the, the question is, can you be sued for you know, libel or slander or uh, invasion of privacy is another one. And one of the tests that's used in, in the courtroom is does a person who's accusing you of, of invading their privacy, do they recognize themselves? Mm. And that's scary because if, if you're writing about somebody or some character um, mm. who's a little wiggy, uh, they might see themselves in something you write and you had never any intention of writing that. So it, it can get very, very tricky. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I think of the movie Diner. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what era you grew up in. I think all of us can name like six people in our lives that are like those people in that movie. So how do you, we can, yeah, that, yeah that's, that's, that's a scary thing. Mm -hmm. It's easy to recognize yourself in someone's writing, I guess. Yeah. Well, um, I, th this is a great conversation. I, I don't think it's done. I think we maybe continue it next week and okay. maybe move on from abstract expressionism to ourselves. Um, and writers, which is kind of where we were moving in the first place. I don't know if we can talk about ourselves for an hour. All <laughs> 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 right. Thank you. And uh, we'll see you next week in the Inland Valley Art and Literature Show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.